Well, good morning and welcome everyone to this post-forum uh, seminar on um, the general area of science and belief uh, in God. Can we believe in God in the age of science? Um, this is uh, based on a chunk of material from a course module that I wrote for my college, uh, NLA University College in Norway, uh, that we ran for the first time uh, this year. Uh, a course on the, the Christian view of life and science in apologetic perspective, um, which was a course which is uh, uh, heavily online as well. So if you're actually interested in more of this kind of material and perhaps in doing some uh, online uh, study for, for credits, it's a 10 credit course, or you know people who might be interested, uh, do let them know. So this morning we'll be looking at uh, belief in God, theism, in the context of our uh, scientific spiritual culture. We'll be considering how science offers both challenges and opportunities to the theological spiritual discipline of Christian apologetics. Now you'll notice a number of terms highlighted in orange here, as I tend to do. And as we get started, we need to introduce some key concepts. The theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century pictured theology as the queen of the sciences who was assisted by her handmaiden philosophy. Uh, by academic training and background, I'm a philosopher. Now, the, the Latin word uh, used by Thomas here would have been scientia, which just meant knowledge or a, a, a field where you, you study something we think we know. And the, the study of nature that we in our society would now call science was called natural philosophy. That is, philosophy about the natural world. Now, a rough and ready definition of philosophy might be something like it is uh, the wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions through the practice of good intellectual habits. The pursuit, the wise pursuit of true answers to significant questions about life, the universe, and everything through the practice of good intellectual habits. But what is science? Philosophers of science are generally agreed that we don't really have a hard and fast airtight definition of what science is in distinction from saying, you know, this is science and these other things are not. Philosopher of science and mathematician John Lennox says there is no one agreed scientific method, though certain elements crop up regularly in attempts to describe what scientific activity involves. Uh, things like um, having hypothesis, experiment, data, evidence, modified theory, prediction, explanation, and so on. But precise definition is elusive. Bearing that in mind, uh, here's my kind of attempt at giving a definition of, of natural sciences, at least here. I would think of the natural sciences as uh, they're a, a fallible first order discipline wherein humans seek to use epistemologically, how we think, virtuous methods to understand explain 
and or predict as much as they can about physical reality, especially by paying attention to how empirical experience can confirm or undermine such truth claims. We're thinking here about science in the modern, like modernistic sense. The roots of this, I think, go back to folks like the Enlightenment philosopher David Hume, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, who made a, a flawed but very influential, still in some circles, argument against the possibility and or believability of claims about miracles. The 19th century empiricist philosopher August Comte insisted that science, properly practiced, could make no reference to divine action to explain any events or phenomena. In his take on the theory of evolution, Charles Darwin followed in Comte's footsteps, uh, uh, assuming that any explanation framed in terms of divine creative activity was, quote, not a scientific explanation. Now this definitional exclusion of um, divine or indeed even irreducibly mental activity from the natural sciences uh, or from science in general, sometimes it's put, uh, a rule that's known to philosophers as methodological naturalism remains influential today, though it is less popular now than it was in the 19th or 20th centuries. The atheist philosopher Mary Midgley, in her book Are You an Illusion, wrote that physical science is not a separate supreme champion outclassing history or philosophy it has no private line to reality philosopher of science Del Ratch in his excellent uh, very readable short book Science and Its Limits uh, says science cannot validate either scientific method itself or the, the presuppositions of that method those who claim either that science is competent for dealing with all matters or that science is the only legitimate method for dealing with any matter are seriously confused. That is, science only gives part of the picture. There are second order, remember I described science as a first order discipline, there are second-order philosophical questions, questions about science and the significance of scientific ideas. Scientists have philosophical disagreements, disagreements that can't be settled on scientific or empirical grounds, but which affect how they do science. We've just mentioned about this this rule that became popular in the 19th century of how to do science. However detailed and accurate our scientific descriptions of physical realities become, such scientific descriptions can't explain why physical reality 
has the fundamental structure that it has. The fundamental physical structure that it has. You can't give a scientific explanation of that. Or why any physical reality at all described by that structure exists. You know, the philosophical question of why does something exist rather than nothing, and so on. So science makes metaphysical, philosophical assumptions, and it raises metaphysical, philosophical questions that require metaphysical, philosophical answers. Now, I dropped the word uh, spirituality in at the beginning and described our, our, the, 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 the scientific spiritual culture and the spiritual discipline of apologetics and so on. A spirituality is another way of talking about having a way of life. It's a way of life that includes your worldview. Uh, you know, spirituality is made up of your worldview assumptions about reality, the ideas about reality that you believe or act on the basis of, combined with your attitudes, uh, your choosing, your committing to things, that, and that combination of your assumptions and your attitudes leads to your acting in the world in a certain way. So the combination, that the attempt to integrate your assumptions, attitude, and actions, or you know, if you're used to these three alliterative points from sermons, another way I put it sometimes is your head and your heart and your hands. Right? Well, think of Jesus' teaching about virtuous spirituality involving loving God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. See those three categories. I have, have a, a holistic love or respectful obedience in the Old Testament meaning here. A holistic love of God that isn't torn between gods. Jesus is referencing back to Deuteronomy 6 here. So Christians put a particular Christocentric content into that structure of spirituality but a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist has a spirituality, a way of living that attempts to combine their assumptions and their attitudes and how they act in the world together. But different spiritualities put different content, although there'll be some overlap, there'll be some differences into that, that generic structure. Now, a culture is, you could think of it as a, a corporate spirituality. The set of shared assumptions and attitudes and ways of acting, um, perhaps together with its artistic traditions. A particular focus in thinking about culture tends to be the artistic expression of a shared spiritual culture. Now, interestingly, the word art comes from the Latin word ars, meaning art, yeah, uh, craft, science, skill, or technique. And it overlaps, therefore, with the Latin term scientia, which we looked at earlier, meaning knowledge or skill. 
fascinating to observe that in a medieval university, a Master of Arts degree included the study of astronomy, which in our culture now, we would classify as, well, that's, you're doing a Master of Arts degree, what the heck are you doing astronomy for? That should be in the science department. But for the medievals, you were studying ours, right? And it has this wide breadth of meaning. So a culture, in this sense, uh, may be or include a, a scientific spiritual culture. Now I said, uh, you know, your spirituality, your way of life includes your worldview, and I want to just focus our attention on two basic elements of people's worldviews. The question of what is real and the question of how do we know anything. In fancy philosophical terms, the what is real question is what philosophers call ontology, the study of being. Assumptions about reality, i.e. what sort of things exist. So questions about do physical things really exist independently of our, our thoughts about them? Or as with a, a pantheistic worldview, is the physical world really an illusion and there is only a spiritual reality? Or is there really a physical reality? Is there only a physical reality and no spiritual reality? These are the three basic categories. It's all physical, it's all spiritual, or it's both physical and spiritual realities exist alongside one another. Did one create the other? What's the relationship between them? Those are all questions about you know, what's real? What's the nature of reality, ontology? But then, of course, there's the question of, well, how do we know? Can we know? What is it to know? These are questions that philosophers call part uh, the discipline of epistemology, which is, as I say, you know, the fancy philosophical way of saying how we know stuff studies. Right? <laughs> Our uh, assumptions about knowledge. So, to give a concrete example, you know, coffee exists as a physical reality. And this is something, you know, that's a claim about ontology. There is a physical reality. But this is something I know via my kind of mental introspection, looking within my mental introspective knowledge of what my senses are telling me. I also would say that my pleasure in drinking the coffee is something that exists. But I don't think that my pleasure in drinking the coffee is a physical thing that exists. I think it's caused by a physical thing, but it's not itself a physical thing. The pleasure I feel, which is something I know, again, by introspecting my, my mental states. And I don't think that my mental states just are, say, the state of my neurons in my brain. I think there's a relationship, but I don't think they're the same thing, because I'm a, a mind-body dualist, as a philosopher would say. So these are the kind of two basic uh, elements of worldview that will be quite important in our discussions and thinking today. What is real? Ontology. How do we know stuff? Epistemology. Now, according to the, the philosophies of, of naturalism and materialism, and often those terms are kind of used interchangeably, 
Uh, but in general terms, naturalism says that reality is an uncreated, purposeless, therefore, because it had no creator who had a purpose in making it, valueless, causally closed, non-intentional system. And materialism, you could kind of think of as naturalism plus the added claim that reality is a merely physical system. So, for example, atheist philosopher Alex Rosenberg asserts that physics is causally closed, nothing affects the physical world from outside the physical world. Any explanation of anything in the physical world is a physical explanation, therefore. Physics is causally closed and causally complete. It tells the complete causal story of anything. So there is no, no, no events that are caused by something beyond the physical world. Physics is causally closed and causally complete on his worldview. And of course we have to ask questions about, well, does reality really fit into the materialistic box description of reality? For example, does the fact that coffee exists fit into, is it coherent with that, that materialistic box, that description of reality? That coffee exists seems to fit in there, but does the fact that I know this via my mental introspection of my physical senses, does that fact fit in? Does the fact that I have pleasure in drinking coffee, that that pleasure exists, is that something that fits into the materialistic box or not? The fact that I know this by a mental introspection, does that fit or not? Now, Alvin Planting, a very famous Christian philosopher from the States, says that a naturalist or materialist will be an atheist. But not every atheist is a naturalist or materialist. So naturalism is stronger than atheism, as it were. Naturalism includes atheism and, and more. But there are, for example, forms of, of Buddhism that are atheistic. Right, but they believe in the existence of spiritual reality, but just not God. So atheism, from the, the Greek atheos, uh, from a meaning without and theos meaning God, uh, atheism, without God, God is not among the things an atheist believes to be real. Indeed, the Cambridge Dictionary defines an atheist as someone who believes that God does not exist. Now, some atheists want to define atheism as simply a lack of belief in God. But, A, that makes all cats into atheists. And B, it fails to distinguish between atheism and agnosticism. So, atheist Kyle Nielsen uh, says that atheism in general is the critique and denial of metaphysical beliefs in God or spiritual beings. As such, it usually is distinguished from theism, which affirms the reality of the divine and often seeks to demonstrate its existence. Atheism is also distinguished from agnosticism, which leaves open the question of whether there is a God or not. 
professing to find the questions unanswered, I just don't know whether there's a God or not, or unanswerable, we can't know whether there's a God or not. We have strong and weak varieties of agnosticism. I've just put on there a little, little picture from um, the Richard Dawkins scale of belief or disbelief in God from his book, The God Delusion. You can, of course, believe or not believe these things to different degrees of confidence. But how do we know that these, this is what reality consists or doesn't consist of? Well, according to scientism, and notice the difference between science and scientism. Scientism is an epistemology and an approach to how we know stuff. Scientism, says with Alex Rosenberg, being scientific just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We, treat, uh, we trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. Or atheist Peter Atkins, uh, a chemist, says, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. But the scientific demand that, that basically you could cash out as the, the demand that every rational belief, to count as rational, a belief must be justified by scientific or empirical evidence. That demand, that rule for how we approach knowing things, is self-contradictory. Because, A, it can't be justified as a rule by scientific empirical evidence. And B, it entails an infinite regress, actually, when you think about it, that just can't be satisfied. You'd have to have, you know, do I believe this? Well, I need evidence for it. But should I believe that the evidence really is real and really does point towards the truth of the first thing that I wanted to know about? Well, I'd, on this rule, I'd have to have evidence for my evidence. But then I need evidence for my evidence, and evidence for my evidence for my evidence for my evidence. And I can never satisfy that demand, ultimately, because it just generates an infinite regress. This scientific demand is also open, I think, to obvious counterexamples that, that you just start from a position of saying, well, this just seems obviously true, and I'm justified in believing this to be true, therefore, until you've got some good reason to convince me that I'm wrong. The burden of proof is on the sceptic here. Um, so counterexamples like the existence of metaphysical, moral, and, and ascetic knowledge, that rainbow is beautiful. Um, that act of killing people was murder, and it was wrong, and so on. So, for example, okay, scientific knowledge here, coffee exists. Maybe we can let that in, but pleasure in drinking coffee exists. Enjoying coffee is a good thing. This is a beautiful cup. I don't think any of that fits. <laughs> Nancy Piercy, in her fascinating book, Saving Leonardo, notes the strict separation of facts from values, whether it's justified by the naturalism, materialism, or by this scientism, is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought between descriptive statements and normative or prescriptive statements. In earlier ages, however, people thought that both types of statements is naught dealt with questions of truth. 
If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it was either true or false. But on the fact-value distinction, stuff on the value side of that distinction is no longer counted as, as being the sort of claim that is either true or false. It's just subjective. And the factual claims that can be either true or false is retained for the fact side, which is then usually demarcated in terms of it's the sort of stuff we can prove with science. So values become private, subjective, individual, relative to social groupings and so on. Facts are public and observable and universal and discovered by naturalistic science on this view. So philosopher Richard Rorty, for example, said that we should try to get to the point where we no longer worship anything, where we treat everything, our language, our conscience, our community, as products of time and chance. And if you can't fit it into that materialistic box, then it's not real, it can't be true or false, you can't talk about it in terms of true and false. Well, here's Alex Rosenberg again, describing his worldviews. Really, you'll see a combination of materialism plus scientism plus this fact-value divide very clearly and starkly expressed. He says, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto, i.e. there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on before, as before, except us. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Rosenberg says individual human life, life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism is true. So there's a sense in which I'd say I think this is a sort of consistent working out of that materialistic, scientific view of reality. He says creating purpose in a world that can't have any, it's like trying to build a perpetual motion machine after you've discovered that nature has ruled them out. He says if this seems hard to take, well, there's always Prozac, which is a... a drug that's helpful for some people who have depression. He says, uh, what should we scientific folks do when overcome by Welshmerts or world weariness? You know, if we get depressed about this picture of the world, well, he says, take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. Because, you know, after all, all there is to your mind is what your brain's doing. So change what your brain's doing. But we want to be relating all of this sort of modern view of science whilst bearing in mind the, the, the more kind of classical view of science that I've described and thinking about what's the relationship between these views of science and, and Christian theology and these views of the nature of the world and how science plays into that conversation and Christian theology. That's our, our topic really. So Christian theologian Alison McGrath defines Christian theology as an attempt to make sense of the foundational resources of Christianity in light of what each age regards as first-rate methods. So that would include, in our age, science. Theology is 
a fallible discipline wherein humans seek to a comprehensive Christian worldview that takes into account both the book of special revelation and the book of general revelation. We're trying to integrate, put together these things as part of our integrated worldview that integrates our way of life. As a sub-discipline of Christian apologetics, uh, Christian theology, Christian apologetics, and I just put up the cover of my recent book of essays on the nature of Christian apologetics in 3D, uh, is, I think you can boil it down to this, that apologetics is really the, the art and science of helping people to be persuaded that a Christ-centered spirituality is a beautiful, good, and reasonable, stroke true, life commitment. A Christ-centered spirituality is a beautiful, good, and reasonable life commitment. And you see how that beautiful, true uh, goodness, sort of three classical values in philosophy, links with our assumptions and our attitudes and our, our actions. To recontextualize an image from the pagan philosopher Socrates, the, the Christian apologist is a kind of spiritual midwife helping people to deliver a strong and healthier spiritual response to Jesus as they can muster. So thinking about science offers apologetics both challenges and opportunities. We've seen that naturalism and materialism kind of restricts people un people's understanding of the reality that is in part studied by the sciences. That scientism as an approach to knowledge restricts people's understanding of knowledge to the empirical methods of often naturalistically defined science. But as we'll see later on in, in our time together, science can support premises, truth claims, in philosophical arguments for or against the existence of God as well. So it, it, it can play into the discussion in, in both directions here.